All right, well, grab your Bibles and open them up to Proverbs chapter 8. Uh, we are continuing today, not only in our series through Proverbs, but uh, we're in the middle of a conversation. Um, that is to say, last week we were reintroduced to the character Lady Wisdom. We met her in Proverbs chapter 2. Uh, we met her again, and then she began to speak to us. Um, and then I went ahead and cut off her conversation halfway through because I can, and I wanted to. Um, but we're going to finish uh, with her call to us today. Now, in the first half, Lady Wisdom made it clear that her truth is available, that her truth is right, that her truth is pure, and that her truth is valuable. And in all of this, she wanted us to see truth for what it is, understand what, what, what truth means and, and how it works. In Proverbs, she's giving the young man a pep talk, sort of motivation, a reason to pursue her truth. She's encouraging him. Now, in the, in the text today, what we're going to be doing is spending an entire sermon connecting the wisdom, of this, wisdom to this created world and exploring how important it is that we align ourselves with wisdom over folly. Now, the title of the sermon is A Life of Humility, uh, the idea being that living wisely and in rhythm with creation requires us to take on a humble posture. Now, to make sense of that, we need to understand what humility is. Um, and specifically, I think we have some interesting ideas of what humility, um, how humility works, and so we need to kind of talk about that before we jump in to Proverbs. Now, I think we often think of humility primarily as a person lowering themselves in stature, sort of humbling themselves by acting less than their position. Uh, one of the ways I've heard people talk about this is when they meet a famous person, um, a celebrity of some sort, say, um, and so they, they come into contact with this person who they have this huge um, idea of, and, and they say, well, he was surprisingly humble. And what they mean is that this person treated them as an equal rather than in the dynamic of the moment, kind of the sort of fan to superstar um, uh, dynamic. They kind of almost expected there to be something there, and then when there wasn't, they, were, they, they saw it as humility. But what's actually happening in that interaction is not someone lowering themselves as it first appears. It is someone who is actually just acknowledging the reality of the moment rather than being influenced by sort of the social pressure that is there. See, when you meet a famous person, it's just two image bearers of God interacting as equals, as it should be. But when someone more powerful or with status um, sort of chooses to acknowledge or treat you with dignity, it feels like a lessening, but it isn't. I would say we feel it even more when we are forced to sort of take a step down the social ladder and interact with those who are lower than us. We feel like we are humbling. We're doing this great thing to even give these people our time and energy. It seems to be a, we a work of decreasing, when it's really just honoring the truth of the moment and rejecting sort of all the false value systems of the world. The truth of the matter is there's only one person who has ever truly lowered themselves, and that is Jesus Christ. We are told in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And so Jesus was the king who took, a form, who took the form of a servant. The eternal God who was willing to enter into the temporary human body. He left heaven to suffer on earth. He gave up his life on the cross as a payment for sins, though he was innocent of any sin himself. Jesus was better and bigger than all of this. And yet it tells us he emptied himself. He took on the pain and the struggle in order to rescue his people from the death that they deserved. That is the gospel. Now, Christians are people who acknowledge that because of Jesus' sacrifice, we have been united to God and promised eternity with him. None of us deserve it. None of us have earned it. Every single follower of Christ is a person who deserves punishment but receives grace. Everything that we have, every single thing is because of God's mercy and love. And our response to that Our response to God's act of grace is to be humble. Paul says this as he opens up that that, that chapter we just read. He starts by saying, have this mind among yourselves. Even previously in in, in verse 1, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, basically, if you believe this at all, if the work of Jesus has, has changed you in any way, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We should live that way. We should respond that way because we are following Jesus' example. We are, we are seeing what he has done, and we are acting in the way that you should act when you have received grace. Jesus' act of humility was actually taking an inferior position. He emptied himself and descended to earth. For us to humble ourselves does not require us to actually lower ourselves, but to simply acknowledge what is. Now, I belabor this point because I want us to understand that humility does not force us to pretend that we are less than we actually are. While humility might force us to sort of sacrifice in this world, it's giving up what was never ours in the first place. It's removing the facade so that we can actually believe and see the world as it is. Being humble is seeing things as they are and having an appropriate relationship with every part of of the world. And so as we come to Lady Wisdom today, it should humble us. Because as she speaks, we become smaller. As she speaks, we are revealed to be foolish and false. And I would say, rather than pushing back against this, rather than sort of defending yourself against this, I encourage you, listen with humility. Allow the clarifying truth that we read today to show you that you are less than you think you are. It's okay. Because what it also shows us is that God is is bigger and, and, and bigger. And when we see this, it just increases our conception of the grace that we have received. And so while the section we're going to read is primarily about wisdom, I want us to see that wisdom is tied deeply to humility. We cannot be wise when we are unwilling to see ourselves in a correct way. 
So let today be a mirror held up to remind you that you have some very deep flaws and weaknesses. You are foolish. You have limitations. Yeah, that's what you came here for. But the other side of that coin is none of that matters because God's grace is more. And the bigger his grace is, the more we can deal with both our own failures, but also whatever it is that sin's going to throw at us next, because it's just going to keep coming. To look at God's immensity then is both humbling, but it's also empowering, because it reminds us that when we rely on him, not on our own strength, he gives us everything that we need. That's what Proverbs 8 is about. Let's hear what Lady Wisdom has for us. Proverbs chapter 8, starting in verse 22 says this, it says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, and there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world." So Lady Wisdom here is the personification of one of God's attributes, what's called his omniscience. Uh, The word omniscience means his knowledge of everything. Um, When you read the Bible, that comes across pretty clearly. God knows everything. Um, He knows how every part of this world works and how they all impact one another. He understands uh, the interplay of every relationship at all times. Everything that happens, all that exists, is known fully and completely by him. And as Lady Wisdom sort of describes her origin here, we see that one of the reasons why God knows all wisdom is because wisdom is simply a byproduct of his work. In other words, God doesn't have to discover wisdom or put the pieces together to make sense of it. Wisdom comes from God. So he doesn't just understand the world. The world is the way that it is because it reflects him. The wisdom of God is part of the makeup of creation because God is creator. Wisdom was brought forth as the foundation of creation, established, Lady Wisdom says, before the foundation, or sorry, before the beginning of the earth, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, wisdom was brought forth. And so wisdom we see is not just a part of or an ingredient in creation. Wisdom isn't just something that is out there somewhere. No, everything that has been made grows up from the soil of wisdom. Which means what holds the universe together is not the laws of science, but the wisdom of God. Now, this becomes very important in conversations about creation and and an intelligent designer. Um, I know a lot of the times when Christians uh, talk about these things, uh, where everything came from, uh, a lot of the debate uh, sort of stays in the physical level. We sort of talk about geology and astronomy and the the fingerprints of God in the material world. And I think we should. There's good questions and conversations to be had there. Right, I think questions like how was matter produced from non-matter and what existed prior to the Big Bang? What could have caused it? There are these all these scientific laws, but kind of where do those come from? Uh, Right, who created physics? These These are questions that haunt the scientific community, believe it or not. Because the existence of the physical world itself demands an answer that science cannot provide. They can tell you how it works, but they can't tell you how, or sorry, they can tell you that it works, they can't tell you how exactly or why. And that's because there's nothing that we can study that can replicate um, creation. Nothing that makes sense of something coming from nothing. 
And the precision from which this world operates, the wisdom, one might say, that God put into his creation, requires an explanation. And as I said, it's one that the physical world cannot give us on its own. It can tell us about the speed of light, gravity, the rules of molecular structure. But again, where that came from and why is a question that cannot be answered from the material world. It requires faith. Faith on the part of science, faith on the part of the Christian, faith on the part of anyone who basically says, I don't know this, I don't have an answer for this, but I believe it to be true. Now, this is also often called the fine-tuning argument, um, the idea that this world is so fine-tuned and put together that there must be someone who put, put it together. It's been represented um, by what's called the watchmaker's analogy, the basic idea being that if the world operates like a well-designed watch with all the parts intricately designed to work together, right, all of these little pieces that need the other pieces to work and the pieces couldn't have developed over time, different times because they all have to work at the same time, it points to the fact that there's probably a watchmaker. Right? It'd be pretty rare that you would pick up a watch on the side of the road and be like, isn't nature amazing? Right? No, there's, there's, there's a reason why that watch exists, and it's because somebody made it. That is extrapolated out to say um, this whole world operates in such a way. If the world is designed, if it's full of wisdom, there must be a designer. As I said, this is the physical argument that kind of is born out of this. Now, I personally think that the arguments for God are even stronger on the philosophical side. Because we don't just live in a physical world that operates on the basis of scientific laws. We live in a world that has morality and beauty and compassion, where we love and reason and have emotions. And so while we live in a physical world that can be studied, a good portion of what we actually do and experience is far more than material. And where does that come from? Are our emotions merely chemical reactions? Is love just synapses firing in the brain? Oh, the poems that could be written about it. Do they have little meaning beyond some sort of naturalistic description? And so Lady Wisdom is here to tell us, no, no, these have great meaning. All of these aspects that make up our existence are not just the result of chance. They are purposed. We have been created for a reason and have been given meaning by our Creator. Life is founded upon wisdom and exists for us to experience and understand the glory of our God, the one who has placed all of this wisdom and meaning into his world. And so Lady Wisdom declares God to be the source of wisdom. She tells us that all that exists aligns with his beauty and the precision of his character. And that with wisdom as our starting point, our lives have purpose and meaning and value. She goes from that now to show us how to see and discover the wisdom that has been designed into our existence. This is what she says in verse 27. She says, When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the foundations of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. 
So Lady Wisdom has already told us she was there at creation. Now she starts talking about herself as a witness, um, and she points out all the ways in which she, she saw uh, the development of the universe. Uh, this language of witnessing creation is actually used uh, in the Bible quite a few times, um, and it's used by God specifically um, to sort of establish his authority and produce humility in the part of, of human beings. Uh, one of the places that we see this very clearly is in the book of Job. Um, in the book of Job, Job is suffering mightily. He is struggling with what is going on. He starts to kind of, he goes from sort of asking God's questions to sort of challenging God a little bit. And then God comes to him with an answer. Um, God comes and speaks to him out of the storm cloud. And he says in Job 38, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and the songs and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Right? So God's answer to Job is, were you there? Kind of interesting looking at Proverbs 8 when she, Lady Wisdom is like, I was there! Right? Sorry, I don't know why I did that. <laughs> were you there? God says this to Job to make it clear that Job is not in a place to sort of match wits with God. The reasoning that Job has used to sort of challenge God operates from a place of ignorance. And God can't answer Job in the way that Job wants because Job does not have the ability to see the world in its fullness. It is not possible for God to string together all of the variables that he is working together at all times because at this point, Job is entirely unaware of 99.9% of them. Probably much more than that if you actually looked at it mathematically. But God cannot explain it to Job in a way that would be satisfactory. And simplifying the answer down is not the way to go. Instead, God wants Job to understand the difference between the creator and the creation. He said, your greatest peace and hope will be in understanding who I am and who you are. Not in having an answer that kind of satisfies your humanistic position. So Lady Wisdom's description of, of being there to see and witness creation itself is a confirmation. Not only that wisdom is designed into the world, but that when Lady Wisdom speaks, it's coming from a place of full and complete comprehension. Which is to say, when God gives us his laws his guardrails, his, his character to pursue. We don't necessarily see how it all fits together. We don't get the whole story, but he is speaking from a place of understanding everything. So when he speaks wisdom, it's from this great understanding of the world, and we can accept that little piece that we don't fully get, knowing that it is pure and it is true, and it can be trusted. When Lady Wisdom speaks, she's giving us a nugget of wisdom but it's a piece that fits seamlessly into the deep complexity of the fullness of God's wisdom. Another place in the Bible where we see similar language to sort of this uh, uh, at the creation, uh, being there at creation, witness to creation, is in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance? Now, I don't know how much time you spend in Isaiah 40. Every once in a while I get up here and tell you to read it because it is one of those chapters that just punches you in the face in a good way. It is humbling. It reminds us of how little we actually understand about God and his ways. 
right? Even the physical world that we are exploring and learning about and have made great strides in over the last century, it's barely known. We don't know the extent of the heavens. We don't understand how small things actually get, and every time we think that we have it figured out, we break something open, more stuff comes pouring out. I actually think that that is what is being referred to as the dust of the earth in a measure is actually this, like, the, the, the dust, the smallest particle, that's the smallest particle they could have imagined at that point. The mountains around us are constantly reshaping themselves and providing us with new things to think about and factor in. Um, I think about Mount St. Helens right in our backyard blew up how many years ago? Don't actually answer that. A little while ago. Um, but if you go down and actually visit there, they'll just start telling you about all the stuff we now know because of Mount St. Helens that we didn't know before. That if that hadn't happened, if we couldn't study that, there's all these things we wouldn't know. And it's crazy cool, but it's also a good reminder that, that there are all of these things that we do not know. The more we know, the more we should realize we don't know. What all of this should do is put us in a place of wonder and marvel as we stare into the infinite complexity and realize that we are small. We want to imagine that we are great and smart and have a pretty good idea of what is going on. But the Bible goes out of its way to show us that we don't. And Isaiah 40, again, makes this so clear. And let me just summarize it with verse 17, which says, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Small. Now, I mentioned last week, as human beings, we're all naturally humanists, meaning that we understand the world from the viewpoint of human beings. That's kind of how we see it. But one of the things that this does, it allows us to see and trust in more than what we can see. Because when we go out and kind of get the wisdom of the world, we're all just kind of, we're collecting a bunch of other people who say, see the world from the same vantage point. But Lady Wisdom and Isaiah 40 are here to give us a different view. More specifically, God's view. And from God's view, human beings aren't nearly as smart and talented or rational as we like to imagine ourselves to be. Instead, the Bible tells us we are sinful, debased, and foolish. And until we actually accept this definition, we will not turn to God and receive the grace and the wisdom that he offers. Until we actually humble ourselves and confess that without him we are lost, we will simply keep moving forward, thinking we are brilliant, as we destroy God's creation with our brilliance. Now, with all of that, let's recognize that God does not humble us just to put us in our place and leave us there. God shows us who we are so that we can realize our inability and turn to him. And the promise that he makes to us is that when we do, he will provide the wisdom and the strength that we lack. This is what Lady Wisdom is trying to get the young man to in Proverbs chapter 8. And I personally love how it's expressed at the end of Isaiah 40. Again, Isaiah 40 breaks you down, leaves you in fearful awe. And then it says this in verse 28. It says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall be exhausted, fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God uses humility to bring us to strength. 
Becoming more and more dependent on God does not make you weak. On the contrary, it means that you are investing your life in the only thing that is connected to the source of wisdom and the order of the world. We were created to be in relationship with the Creator, trusting Him and obeying Him and living in rhythm with Him. This is how life in the garden was described before the fall. This is what the experience of heaven will be. The wisdom of God will rule over all things and we will get to experience it fully rather than continuing to struggle through the results of our own foolishness. And so this is how Lady Wisdom completes her call by declaring the life and goodness that result from taking the wisdom of God seriously. She's done the work of showing us who we are. Now she is going to, again, encourage us and build us back up. This is what she says in verse 32. She says, And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. So Lady Wisdom connects her ways, connects God's ways to blessings and favor and life. Now we shouldn't ultimately think of this as transactional. I do this and then God will respond with blessings. No. The idea here is that because his wisdom is the foundation for all creation and the means by which all the systems of the world operate, following this pattern will provide you with a life that is full and complete and lacking in nothing. Hers is the way of life an entire means by which to understand ourselves and our purpose and our value. It provides us with an order and a means to live life as God intended and to be filled with a fullness, a life that makes sense and is satisfying. And this is huge, because really that's what everyone's looking for. But life on its own is not satisfying. People are looking for meaning and and, and something that will take away sort of this existential dread that nothing really matters. We know that there's got to be something more, that there has to be meaning, that it has to be purposed. But we really aren't sure what that all means. And as long as we think that we are just protoplasm doing what it does under these temperatures, and the love that we feel is nothing more than chemicals in the brain... And if the work that we do is nothing but the proverbial spinning of the hamster wheel, right, the rat race, then it's really hard to feel like life has any meaning at all. Human beings untethered from God's wisdom shrink the world down to what we can imagine we can control. And then we are massively overwhelmed when we find out we can't hold it all together. Now along with this, for the sake of our own sanity, we ignore all of these unanswerable questions I mentioned earlier. Right, Haunting us in the background are questions like, what is the meaning of life? How can we really know anything? Where does everything come from? Every once in a while, we are forced to sort of stare into that abyss, midlife crisis, you know, coming to the end of life, some sort of major upheaval in your life that makes you sort of all of a sudden rethink everything, and all of a sudden you're like, I've been ignoring that stuff for a reason. Right? And all of a sudden we're forced to consider all these big concepts that we've been trying to look away from. Life on our own is both unmanageable on a daily basis and overwhelming on a metaphysical one. But Lady Wisdom says it doesn't have to be this way. She says, whoever finds me finds life. 
And in this, she is saying that just as life comes from God, so do all of the aspects that make up a meaningful life. God doesn't just give us breath. He gives us unconditional love and clear purpose and value and the means to enjoy the world that he has created good without it becoming something that we attach our meaning to. He allows us to be satisfied by our accomplishments without being burdened by our identity coming from our performance. He gives us a basis for morality and compassion in a world that most often operates on a survival of the fittest. And his wisdom, and in weaving that wisdom in and through creation, God has blessed us with everything that we need. And he is the one who is central to us having it all. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. That quote, in him we live and move and have our being, comes from Paul's sermon at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. And what Paul is doing here is he's attaching Jesus to the great questions of Greek philosophy. Where does life come from? What animates us? What causes us to live and move? And who are we? What is our being? Now, often the focus on this sermon by Paul is on strategy, right? He quotes the Greek poets and references their philosophers. He connects the, the message of the gospel to these Gentile people. And this is often then used as an example of how we should contextualize and, and bring the truth of the gospel to our culture, and that's all great. I don't mean to be, It is great. Right, while this is true and important, we should also actually hear what he's saying. What Paul is saying in this sermon is that all philosophy terminates on God. As the source of wisdom and, and, and the place from which all wisdom comes into the world, it makes sense that God would be where we go to find the answers to life's biggest questions. Like Lady Wisdom, Paul wants us to understand that, that wisdom and God are inseparable. This same idea anchors the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John begins with this amazing statement about who Jesus is. Right? The first four verses say, uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that sounds actually quite a bit like Proverbs 8. But instead of wisdom here, the focus is on the logos. Right? In verse 1, that capital W word is translated from the, the Greek word logos. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. Um, now, that's a, that's a philosophical term uh, popularized by the Greek philosopher Heraclitus at about 500 BC. And it's a word that is used to describe the principle of order and knowledge, kind of the wisdom. So the Logos is the overarching wisdom that makes sense of everything and by which all things operate. And so when he says that Jesus is the Logos, it is to say that he is both the linchpin that is required to make sense of the universe, but that he is also outside and bigger than the system itself. All things were made by him and through him and for him and to him. He is the source of life. He is this overwhelming power and authority and wisdom that we read about in Proverbs 8 and Isaiah 40. Jesus is the principle of order and knowledge. Now what's awesome about this is John chapter 1 is actually a nativity story. Right? It's telling us the Christmas story. In the same way that the other Gospels tell us about the incarnation or, or God becoming man through angels and shepherds and wise men, John describes it by showing us the eternal reality of the baby in the manger. 
Jesus is the Logos, the reason and purpose behind all things, and we see he enters into creation in order to redeem it. He is not only where wisdom comes from, but he becomes the answer to all of the questions of value and identity that we all struggle with in our lives. As Jesus humbles himself and the eternal takes on the temporary, he comes to provide us with the life that we destroyed through sin. See, the humbling truth of this is we are the creation of God and we rebelled against God and against his order and have chosen to trust in our own very limited wisdom. In this, we have declared ourselves enemies of God, which looks extremely foolish in light of Isaiah chapter 40. And what this does is it puts us in a place of extreme need. We not only can't do it on our own, but we have alienated ourselves from the one who has given us everything that we need. We're stuck. So this is the gospel. The good news is that in the midst of this, Jesus humbles himself for our sake. Being humbled and recognizing our weakness and inability then is, our mean, is the means for us to turn to him and to acknowledge what he has done on our behalf. He has made this available to us, but we have to admit that we need it. That we are too foolish to trust it. And so we come here every week to be confronted with the glory of God. Ultimately, we come here every week to be humbled. To remember that, that he is the creator, we are the creation, and we're meant to exist in relationship with him. And that while sin has destroyed this, Jesus came to reconcile us to God and to fill us with a wisdom that is not our own. Every week when we come together, we acknowledge this idea of filling when we take communion. And as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are trusting God's promise to be our strength, to give us what we lack. We are coming to him and saying, we need you, and believing the promise that he will give us what we need. So as you come to the table today, come humbly. Come recognizing that the Logos, the divine and eternal wisdom of God, has chosen to draw you into his family and to give you everything that you need to be fulfilled and satisfied in this life. To him be the glory. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much. As The more that we think about how big you are, how great you are, how much different and holy, and it's just amazing that you care about us at all. We who have turned ourselves against you, we who, who, who fight with you constantly, you keep coming back and you keep showing us grace upon grace upon grace. God, help us to recognize this. Help us to see what it means that, that you love us, that you care about us. God, as you humble us, help us to also see that this humbling is what we need. Help us to be a people who respond to you in an appropriate way. Who look at the truth and actually respond as we should. Help us to know you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.